0: Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis. Today, uh, we're going to do one of my uh, solo shows to try to roll out here. And you know, they're not the easiest thing to do because there's a part of me that wants to like sit down and script a whole show and, you know, write out my points and line up the quotations and build an argument, make a point. But uh, it's not that fun. And, you know, I'm not really in the habit of doing that. Um, the first time I gave a public lecture in uh, the New York Open Center, and I think it was 1991, um, I prepared. You know, I was giving a public lecture on Philip K. Dick, Philip K. Dick, and Vallis, and Gnosis. It was super fun. Uh, New York Open Center at that time gave me a lot of room to uh, develop the uh, peculiar thoughts that have become my uh, stock in, quote unquote, Trade, um, but at that time, you know, I, I did a good job, and then I, I gave my my talk. But I realized I was like, you know, I put in a lot of time to that that talk. But you know, if I if I'm going to be doing these talks, and I you know learn to not really prepare very much, I'm just going to save a lot of time. And I wouldn't say that I'm lazy. I'm, I can be a very dedicated person. I've done this show almost every week for eight years and I've written books and blah, blah blah. you, know, you need a little bit of self-discipline to get going uh, with that kind of um, workload. Uh, but you know, I'm, I'm also a bit of a, a bit of a slacker. So I, I realized that, hey, if I just sort of got, got better at kind of not really preparing very much and then riffing, well, that would be a nifty thing. Now, it's a little different when you're riffing inside, you know, in a hall with a bunch of people. You can kind of sense where they're at. You can what what jokes they laugh at, what points seem obscure. You know, you say something, and you can tell no one's getting it, and then you stop and kind of re redo it. So it's it's a lot more fun. You know, it's 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 or more interactive. It's more like a like a jazz performance, and it's totally true. I mean, this is weird to admit, but it's totally true that my best talks have all been with the coolest crowds. Not because I'm like, oh, these guys are cool, I'm gonna bring out my best stuff, but because I basically just open my mouth. I have a few ideas, I you know, I have a rough idea of where I'm going. It's not like completely spontaneous, like Terrence, was completely spontaneous, or almost completely spontaneous. He could just start. That's a little bit too much for me. I like to have a a little bit of a game plan, you know, four or five talking points written down on the back of an envelope or something like that. Uh, But it's really been very clear that the times I've done that when there was a hostile audience have been cold and crimped, uh, somewhat stuck, and on the other side, when I've been speaking with people in front of people who are wide open, curious, vivacious, strange, that I've said many things that I just have never said or thought before. And it's an amazing thing. you know, if you're a musician who improvises, you know the feeling, you're suddenly doing something you've never done before, and you're able to even recognize that it's pretty fucking good. And you're like, where did that come from? I mean, it's an amazing thing about being human. You know, we th- we walk around with our stories in our heads all the time going, oh, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, why did I do that? Oh, that person did that thing to me, I got to do that thing back to them, da-da-da-da-da. And yet, when we stop and open our mouths, we're actually not really controlling what we're saying most of the time. There's just sort of an interaction and words come out, sense comes out, allusions come out sometimes to things we're not even exactly entirely aware of. Uh, and it's sort of a marvelous, uh, magical... Uh, thing about our everyday lives, even though it's completely banal and ordinary, we, we do it every day. I had a professor in, at, at Rice, a uh, very sophisticated guy, like heavy-duty <laughs> philosophical dude, you know, we like started the class, we went like right back to Aristotle, or the idea of substance, and he made sure that we understood the novelty of the idea of substance at that point in history and how it had conditioned, in some sense, all of philosophy since that point. So he was a heavy-duty guy, but he talked about like this question of, of decision, making decisions. He, his, he had a great analogy, which has never left me, which is like, you you wake up, and you don't get out of bed immediately. You lie there. Whatever. You, know, you turn the alarm off. You know you're going to get up, but you you know you don't get up right away. So you lie there. You know you're getting up, but you keep lying there. And you think, well, you know, I should get up, but you keep lying there. And then you get up. Who did that? Did you decide to get up? Well, no, you'd already decided to get up. But when you get up, that's something else. You're not doing that. So who is that you? Anyway, it's kind of fun to tap into that guy when I'm I'm giving talks. But somehow doing it with a podcast is a little bit stranger. It feels a little more risky, a little more vulnerable. For one thing, I'm not getting any feedback from the crowd. So I can't kind of play off people's facial expressions or their energy bodies or whatever it is that uh, inspires me to move in a certain direction. And the other thing is that particularly because they're being, you know, distributed online, it feels a little more exposed, a little more vulnerable. Like it it might be safer just to actually kind of script the thing out, you know, make sure I I got all my points under control and I I got my my angles, I got my, you know, maybe even write it out. You know, people write out their Their self-produced podcasts almost exclusively, unless they're having a conversation. So, of course, it's easy having a conversation and not write things out. That's really boring, Um, even for the interviewer, Even though a lot of interviewers write them out, still kind of boring. I think the intros are kind of boring. You know, when I when I'm sitting there listening to the radio and I and I'm hearing someone and I realize they're reading, I'm bored. Like I, I I'm like, why are you reading? Just just say it. Now, some people can write something and then spit it back like an actor and it doesn't sound like a text. Go for it. That's great. You know, I don't have any problem with that. But that way that you get like, you know, a lot of like reviews on NPR where they squeeze out the meaning of the word they're attaching to some record album or some new television show. And you totally know they're reading and it's just boring. It's a, it's an open medium. We should be increasing the space for liveliness and mistakes. But mistakes, verbal mistakes can get you in trouble these days. I mean, they could always get you in trouble, but they can really get you in trouble these days. And sometimes I'm afraid I'm going to spill out and say something that's going to come back and haunt me. But that's the risk. That's the risk I'm taking. So what I'm going to talk about uh, today is the psychedelic sangha. Psychedelic sangha is a uh, organization, I guess you call it, uh, a mini movement. I don't know what you call it when there's just like a few people talking about stuff and they decide to start doing things in different cities. But, you know, a mini movement um, that was uh, started or, or conceived initially by uh, some characters in the East Coast, in- including uh, Catherine McLean, who we've had uh, on the podcast many years ago. She was a uh, one of the researchers at Johns Hopkins working on uh, psilocybin and, you know, so heavy duty researcher. She was one of the people who who really guided uh, a lot of the sessions, uh, but ended up getting frustrated uh, with, uh, you know, the academy and research science and the program and kind of went her own way. She's a serious uh, Buddhist practitioner and uh, a a good rabble rouser in the uh, psychedelic circuit. She's a wonderful woman. As well as my pal, uh, Chris Kelly, uh, another... uh, wild psychonaut from uh, New York City, and uh, they came up with this notion, the psychedelic song—or the idea of bringing together people who were interested in psychedelics, interested, people who were drawn to psychedelics, and people who had some committed relationship with the Dharma, by which we mean mostly Buddhism, but not exclusively, because some of the other characters in the fold uh, run a little bit more on the Hindu tip, but really what unites it is a certain commitment to dharmic practice, you know, the notion that it's not just about reading books, but it's about doing stuff and doing stuff regularly with a certain intention, with a certain directionality. Now uh, what I was excited by with this uh, conjunction, the psychedelic sangha, was was, I've been really kind of struggling with what to do about uh, particularly the explosion of interest in, in psychedelics Um, I've probably explained this some some before, but it's worth mentioning that when you're someone like me, who's half a century old, and who came up in the psychedelic underground uh, from a teenage time and move through the evolution of this underground, even as the underground became more conscious of itself, more committed to public discourse, to conferences, to uh, publications, to magazines, to zines, to online communications. I mean, it's always been sort of a chatty, nerdy world. Uh, the modern psychedelia, but it definitely, you know, ro- went the way of many subcultures in the late 80s, 1990s, were becoming more committed to kind of communication, people getting together, etc. into the 2000s. So I have all this knowledge and experience and ideas and people I've known and people I've had communications with and, you know, train wrecks I've seen and uh, absurdities, uh, visions, all this whole wild uncontrolled panoply of experiences and ideas, and now we're in such a different world. I mean, you know, in this, as in all worlds, everything's changed. Everything has changed, and it's mostly kind of (laughs) hard. And while some people have come to embrace psychedelics as something positive in the change, that there are, you know, all these... Wonderful ways that they can help people, and wonderful ways they can help uh, people with issues with psych- with trauma, psychological problems, uh, um, and you know, even just to to uh, restore some sense of the sacred. You know that the, the scientists tell us that psychedelics can occasion mystical experience. Now you may go, what is mystical experience exactly? But science, science knows. Now the researchers have told us that yes. It is mystical. It may just seem mystical, and sometimes it may seem absurd or terrifying, but we're not going to talk about the absurd or terrifying parts of the experience. We want to talk about the mystical parts of the experience. So if you're someone like me, this contemporary construction of psychedelics as safe, as good for your well-being, as healthy, as beneficial, as uh, mystical... Uh, or sacred, you know, it's understandable. I actually believe all of that or that it can be that, or those things can be that. Uh, but at the same time, it's, it's changed the frame so drastically and it seems so unsubtle and uh, uh, frankly, kind of ignorant a lot of the time, at least ignorant in relationship to the kinds of experiences that I've had and the communities that I've been a part of in terms of Really embracing the ambiguity and weirdness and trickiness and sometimes disturbing character of uh, of these substances and these experiences. So I'm like, what do I do with this stuff? Do, am I supposed to go out there and go like, hey, guys, it's more complicated than that and like be kind of a, a grumpy old man? That's so boring. I mean, I, I'm probably you know, destined to become a grumpy old man. Maybe I'm already a grumpy old man in some ways, but I think it's really important to resist that as much as possible. So to be a little more proactive, a little more productive uh, in terms of my focus. And I realized that this particular connection, the the connection between spiritual psychedelic use or psychedelics taken in the spirit of spirituality or, or religion, mixed with the... Uh, sort of fringe or underground within American Buddhism, or within the Western Dharma, that has been inspired by, drawn to, and even returns to, regularly, uh, psychedelics as part of a committed life, perhaps a little heretical, perhaps a little bit on the sly, but nonetheless committed to a life of Dharma, whatever that exactly means. Now, of course, Buddhism and the Dharma has been transforming uh, a great deal lately, particularly if you look at mindfulness as a part of Buddhism, though in many ways what's happened now is that uh, you know practices associated with Buddhism and uh, and the Dharma have been so secularized that they're able to be relatively easily detached to some degree, and now they've kind of have a life on their on their own. But as that process has happened, of course, Buddhism itself has changed. And it's quite clear that like yoga, uh, Buddhism, and to a certain degree, psychedelics already are, are bound up with this increasingly intense uh, sort of engine of uh, consumer capitalism that's focused on well-being, on wholeness, on uh, you know being the best you can be, and uh, uh, you know being happy, and this whole kind of like Pot, this sort of like construction of, of subjective happiness and positivity as something that's managed by experts, by products, by uh, mainstream discourse, and all embedded very comfortably in a kind of like, hey, you know, neoliberalism's not that bad. Let's just kind of keep it keep it going and, you know, get, get some smiles out there, people, and, you know, everything will be working out. So it's a complex time, but I, I, for me, that connection is a really, is a really sweet one. Um, and I first wrote about it, uh, I mean, I've been thinking about it for a long time. I've always been interested in kind of non-conventional uh, expressions of spirituality and religion, and I was interested in psychedelics, so obviously I was interested in, in their overlap. Uh, not just interested, but participating in it, absorbing it, um, um, playing with it. Um, but when I heard about Zigzag Zen, the first edition of Zigzag Zen that this guy, Alan Bediner, was putting together a collection of articles from some, from some heavy Buddhists and, and other characters. Uh, about the connection between psychedelics and Buddhism, I was like, oh, man, I got to get in that thing. So I, I sought him out, I found him at a party, and I just, you know, stuck my foot in the door and was kind of obnoxious about it. But he, he agreed to, and I, I wrote one of, my, one of my favorite pieces in some ways. I, I think it's really, uh, it stands up. It's called The, the Paisley Gate. Um, and the story that, that starts it off is worth, uh, worth relating I was at the uh, San Francisco Zen Center. I, I, I sat there for uh, many years, especially at the Green Gulch um, uh, campus, I was almost going to say, but Green Gulch Retreat Center in Marin County, which is just a beautiful place. I mean, whatever else you want to say, it's just a beautiful, beautiful place. And one day we we're sitting around in an unusually casual situation with uh, with the teacher, Reb Anderson, um, and there were a couple of other people sitting around and was just kind of chatting. And this woman, in a very Marin County way, said, uh, basically, she asked, is Jerry Garcia a bodhisattva? Which is, you know, a terribly Marin County question to ask. And, and it, it was asked with sincerity. Um, and so Reb responded with sincerity, and I really admire his response, because what are you going to say, you know? And he said, "Well, in in you know in, in Buddhist cosmology, there are these beings called uh, protectors, and uh, in you know in in, uh, in the Va- Tibetan Vajrayana, you talk about lokapalas or these spirits of place. Basically, they're the pagan gods or the pre-Buddhist gods who you know deep earthy, quote unquote shamanic, super indigenous." pretty intense, you know, you're not gonna just like whistle by them if you meet them at the crossroads at midnight, those kind of characters. So when Buddhism came into uh, Tibet and especially, well, what are you gonna do with these guys? So there's these kind of wizard wars and political tensions and after all this kind of happens and Buddhism wins the field. Uh, that these beings are incorporated as protectors. So, yes, they are part of the Buddhist you know, framework. They're part of the matrix of entities that both exist and don't exist at the same time and create the kind of imaginal and psychic uh, environment, p- the theater the, of, uh, of the Dharma in that particular area. But they still retain some of their outsiderness, their uh, their roughness, their their uh, uh, barbaric tendencies. Let's say, which is probably not quite the right word to use, but let's just go go with it for now. Uh, in any case, it's certainly the right word to use for Jerry Garcia in the context of whether or not uh, he he's a Bodhisattva. So no, he was not a Bodhisattva. But there was a certain kind of energy around the Grateful Dead that created a space within which a certain kind of very feral, psychedelic uh, Western dharma existed. I mean, you know, the point to refer to here is uh, the song Eyes of the World, which is also the title of a Dzogchen uh, chapbook out there. So, you know, you you go with that one. And if you listen to those lyrics in the right frame of mind, well, you know, it's a it's a pretty crystalline teaching you may be uh, downloading at that point, but but Reb was straight, you know, straight to make the point that this was not exactly the Dharma. Uh, and you know, good point. Uh, later on, uh, I, I, I gave a, I did a podcast with Vince Horn over at Buddhist Geeks, great podcast, um, and he titled it somewhat unwisely: "Is Jerry uh, Garcia a Bodhisattva?" Because I told this story. And he got a lot of grief—not a, a little grief, a lot of grief. I was like, "Oh, Jagger's—he was a heroin addict," you know. And you're like, "Well, yeah, okay, but you know, we could, we could talk about the Mahasiddhas, you know. You could talk about the, you know, characters in um, in Tibet who are, you know, uh, seen as uh, great wise teachers that led un- seriously unconventional lives. But hey, we'll just let that alone, and we'll just acknowledge that there's a lot of pushback." Uh, against this kind of thing. But for me, what I recognized, and this is where I thought I was actually being smart for once, was that this pointed towards something really interesting about the dharma, which is that uh, it's kind of tantric, the psychedelic dharma. Because like tantra, it involves secrecy. Can't really talk about it. You're going to get busted by the cops. In fact, even if you're working at a, at a Dharma center or you're, you're participating in a Dharma center, you probably don't want to tell people that you're, you're a regular tripper. They're not going to like that. Rick Strassman, for example, the guy who wrote the, uh, did all the DMT studies and uh, wrote the spirit molecule, he was a heavy-duty Zen practitioner, and his sangha did not like what he was doing. And it became so conflictual that he bailed. And, and then he you know found his way towards Orthodox Judaism, you know? Whatever, we lost one, <laughs> as I could say as a as a Buddhist, uh, though I, I think it's just as good to be a Orthodox. In fact, it's more, in some ways more interesting to be an Orthodox uh, Jewish psychonaut. Um, that's another topic. Uh, but the point being that in a weird way, psychedelics within the established Western Dharma function like a tantra because they're sort of secret or... And because they're kind of magical, that a lot of tantric practices involve, you know, what we could loosely call magic. You're using visualization, you're doing ritual, you're doing mantra, there's incense, you're calling up deities. The deities are doing things, some of them have knives, some of them are having sex. You know, it's a juicy energetic world and you're internalizing these powers inside your body, which is revealed to be this you know, semi-virtual network of astral forces and flows and knots of energy and that these energies can be manipulated or alchemically transformed through various practices that involve ritual and these deities, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I'm not trying to make too simplistic uh, uh, an analogy here, but within an already more informal, mess, mixed up western dharma, it seemed to me pretty clear that, that psychedelics were kind of playing that role. Well, now things are kind of changing, and it's sort of interesting to intervene into this conversation again, now that both psychedelics and Buddhism have, have are receiving more attention, uh, that, that meditation is part of you know uh, corporate uh, seminars. It's widely practiced. Mindfulness is everywhere. It's in the museum. It's in the university. Um, and again, it's not quite the same thing as Buddhist Buddhism with a capital B, but there's clearly a connection. Uh, and at the same time, of course, psychedelics have really transformed in a way that um, they're not really secret in that way. I mean, even if you still can get thrown in jail for, uh, for manufacturing or distributing them or, or consuming them, um, and that should never be forgotten because there are people who are suffering in jail right now in, in needless ways. Some of them with terribly long prison sentences that are as unfair as, um, you know, when they're back, back in the day when they were giving out bigger sentences for crack dealers than for uh, people who were uh, uh, snorting powder cocaine because of the weight issue. I mean, it's totally absurd. And, but people, acid dealers, get busted for the same uh, thing. they get the, the, the material substance gets weighed as part of the amount of the drug. Uh, and so some of these guys are in for a very, very long period of time, which should not be forgotten. Nonetheless, in terms of the public world, in terms of the, the sort of uh, public discourse, the, uh, the, the, again, the theater of the acceptable, the allowable, the Overton window, whatever you want to call it, uh, psychedelics have really changed the game. So it becomes a very interesting question. How do we talk about this again? So I had done one uh, psychedelic sangha event with my good friend Spiros Antonopoulos uh, in Los Angeles. And Spiros, uh, he's been on the show, so if you're, if you're a hardcore listener, you probably remember he, he came on and talked about his, uh, his, uh, his seizure, essentially. Basically, he had a mini stroke um, and a fascinating thing for a, a spiritual and, and serious yoga practitioner to talk about. But he's a deep yogi. Uh, he's he's got a, a a yoga studio called the Los Angeles uh, Yoga Club uh, down in downtown LA and connected with Ardor Labs, which is a super cool uh, sort of apothecary, really groovy guy. And we did one of this psychedelic sangha event, we put it out there, you know, put it on a meetup, and it kind of got around this and that, da da da. And then you know, there was about thirty people there. It was a nice nice show up for for not too much advertising and. You know, uh, uh, downtown LA is kind of a hassle for people to get to, uh, especially from the west side. But people showed up, you know, and there were some practitioners there. There were some people there. There was one guy in particular who talked about doing a lot of uh, concentration practice in particular. And he, he made the point, which I fully agree with, that if you're really... You know, dive into concentration practice, shamatha practice very seriously, and you you keep at it for a while, either over years or, you know, over days uh, intensively, um, it, it gets basically psychedelic. Not even like psychedelic or pretty psychedelic, it gets psychedelic. But most of the people there, or psychedelic people. I mean, not that you can't be both, that's part of the point, but there's definitely a sort of tension between psychedelic people who have spiritual aspirations and that might include Buddhism, but maybe they don't sit that much and they probably haven't read too many sutras, but they like the picture of the Buddha and they like the idea of meditation and they've done a little bit of it and they like the clip, whatever. They're totally awesome. Great. Love it. On the other side, though, is a little more interesting to me category, which is people who have a committed Dharma practice who have either maybe they used to do psychedelics and they're interested again, or they already do them both, but kind of, you know, haven't talked about it too much, Um, and those folks are, to me, are, for whatever reason, a little more interesting, maybe just because I've spent a lot of time in psychedelic conferences and around a lot of, uh, you know, psychedelic characters, so I love it. It's my home in some ways, but it's it's, uh, not as novel for me. Um, And I realized it may have been partly because of the place we did it. So when I was finding trying to find a place up here in San Francisco to do the psychedelic sangha, I was like, I want to do it at a Dharma center. But I didn't think that was very likely, because almost all Dharma centers are just going to say, no way, buddy, no way. Because even if this is, as I will argue, already part of the Western Dharma, and has been so for a very long time. Certainly longer than almost all the traditions that have been operative in the West have been here. There have been people taking drugs and exploring the Dharma seriously. So it's, you know, it's part of the picture. Nonetheless, it just doesn't look good. It's still too greasy kid stuff. Uh, It's still too much of a drug uh, so it disturbs people they, they don't like the profile, they don't like the association. So I didn't think it was very likely. But then I was talking to my uh, new pal Michael Taft, who does a great another great podcast. See I, I like the geeky Buddhist podcast clearly because Michaels, you know, I mentioned Vincent Hortons and uh, Buddhist geeks. Michaels is called deconstructing yourself. And it's a super nerdy has a super nerdy focus on meditation really high level discussion, really fascinating. I've learned a huge amount. Um, and Michael invited me to be on a show and I'm actually kind of glad I hadn't really listened to the show before. Uh, so I and I, I you know I do that as part of the spontaneous thing or the lazy, equal spontaneous thing that I mentioned at the beginning of the show. So I'm like, oh, I should listen to the show. And like, oh, yeah, I didn't didn't get around to it. But I went in there and we talked about Robert Anton Wilson and psychedelics, we talked about Buddhism, talked about practice, talked about faith and weirdness versus, you know, the contemporary uh, corporate realities. And he teaches uh, meditation in some corporate situation. So it was really interesting to hear him because he's clearly a freak. He's all tatted up and long hair. And he's got that, you know... Uh, wizardly twinkle in his eyes so uh, you know a fascinating conversation and then I ended up I was enjoyed it so much I went back and uh, listened to the show and you know been hanging out with him more and, and he also teaches at a place in, in San Francisco called the uh, San Francisco Dharma Collective which sounds pretty cool right you're like ooh Dharma Collective I like the sound of that and you should because it's really interesting and what the story of the San Francisco Dharma Collective is is that It once, the building where it it takes place, once was the local outpost of Against the Stream, uh, which was uh, uh, Noah Levine's outfit. And he was the Dharma punk dude, also tatted up, you know, also intense. Character, very successful, very charismatic uh, teacher. Uh, a lot of folks in recovery did a kind of recovery, so it was very, like, street, gritty, transformed through the Dharma kind of thing. It definitely helped a lot of people. Seemed pretty positive to me. I didn't really... I didn't read the book or anything, but, you know, seemed like a good character that... up, uh, But he didn't just get me to like it's some kind of, like, well, he was, like, you know, flirting with the girls or something, or even... He he did some bad stuff. I don't know the details. I don't really want to know the details. But let's just say that everybody agrees that he pretty much well, not everybody, but a lot of people agree that he, you know, deserved to go down. Even if they didn't like exactly the way that that happens in some communities. So there's been a lot of this in the in the Buddhist world. There's been a lot of this in the whole history of of uh, guru scenes and Eastern paths and. Uh, esoteric orders in the West, but of course it's also been in mainstream re- religions as well. Not to mention business, not to mention the academy. You know, it's a it's a pervasive pervasive issue. But in the Buddhist world, um, it's somehow more more even more grating because, you know, you think these people would be, have their, have their shit together a little better and have a little more awareness about what they're doing and the karmic effects of what they do on the other people who are in their groups and who are, uh, you know, really hurt by this kind of stuff. And, you know, things were pretty wild and we're in the 70s. I, I, I kind of give the 70s a little bit more slack, even though there's reasons to be critical of it, for sure, without question. And we're in a different time. In any case, Noah went down, Against the Stream went down, uh, but the folks who were left were like, hey, we don't want to stop. We like this. So they they took over the lease. They established a collective. They have, you know, they're developing their own process about how to make decisions and uh, how to book different teachers and what to do with the space, um, how to, you know, generate funds and all that. Uh, But it's basically a headless organization, or as they put it, there is an empty throne there, uh, which is really marvelous because it's about, you know, not the Buddha so much. I mean, it is about the Buddha, but it's really about the Sangha, the collective, the group, the people. And that was what was important about psychedelic Sangha, is that we're not saying psychedelic Buddha, like, yeah, let's all be Buddhas or Buddha's psychedelic. Maybe Buddha's psychedelic, maybe Buddha's not psychedelic. I don't even really know what that means. Some of the pictures are kind of trippy, but I'm not really sure what that means. We're not really talking about the psychedelic dharma. I think there is a connection there. I think there are aspects of the dharma, aspects of questions of no self, of interdependence, of the the both here, not here nature of visionary experience that dovetail quite well. Uh, with a sophisticated approach to uh, to psychedelics, but I, I wouldn't even make I wouldn't make that strong a claim. But the psychedelic dar- uh, sangha is definitely there. It's just real. It's just a historical reality, and it's not just now. It's not just ten years ago. It's not just twenty years ago. It's not just thirty years ago. I mean, it goes back till at least the late 1940s. And if you want to fudge and go earlier, uh, you can do that. Uh, with, to some degree as well. You go back to Alan Bennett, uh, Aleister Crowley's sort of like uh, uh, esoteric big brother uh, who used a lot of drugs, not psychedelics as far as we can tell, but you know, opium and uh, chloroform even, to treat his asthma. And he kind of blew, and he was interested in them as a magician, as somebody who was interested in the esoteric practices. He was in the, uh, of the Golden Dawn along with Crowley and Yeats and all those characters. And, and it, for him, drugs were part of the way of exploring the mind. And then later on, he led. Uh, he, he became, uh, I think, the second British person to, to formally become a bhikkhu in the Theravadan tradition in, in Burma. And he lived in Ceylon. A lot. So, not quite the same thing as, you know, beatniks eating peyote and then, you know, med- meditating in Zen and listening to John Cage records or whatever. Uh, but, you know, go- goes along to, uh, with the point. But the idea really is that it's Sangha focused. It's about what people are actually doing and how people can kind of come together and work through these enormous questions um, together. So, uh, through Michael's encouragement, I approached uh, SF Dharma Collective and kind of surprising both of us, they said, sure, let's try it out. Well, it was a little more complicated than that. So, while we were able to do the first uh, uh, gathering at the space, and we'll do a few more there at the very least, there was some pushback. And that was actually kind of interesting. Even as the pushback mounted and there was kind of stuff online, and you know, I, I, I'm not on Facebook, so I, don't, I didn't have to read it directly, but there was sort of a Facebook debate or whatever. Uh, I was actually really engaged and really interested. Um, I kind of, kind of peaked up. In fact, the, the fact that for some uh, Buddhists, this conversation is anathema, is heretical, is, and this is to quote a, a blog post I read, evil. Evil. I loved it. I was like, I almost made me happy. I was like, oh my God, at this point in the game, when all, like every proclivity has been sort of embraced by, you know, multicultural capitalism as being okay, you know, whatever, you do that, we do this, no big deal, just kind of, you know, be mellow about it. Like, it's really hard to be heretical. <laughs> you know, you might like, whatever, call for, you know, killing everybody or something like that. But, you know, you, you got to work work a little hard uh, to to be a heretic. But in this case, it still really disturbs people. And and I say that in a, in a very respectful way, that really interests me. It makes me feel like there's more at stake. It makes me feel like everybody in the game has to, uh, uh, you know, rise to the occasion of being clear about what the issues are. Like, for the most part, I, I really avoid political arguments, even discussions to to deep extents on Twitter, because it's a terrible way, terrible place to have conversation. I can't believe people wage, like, their primary place where they wage po- politics or, or mint political discourse is in Twitter. It's just, it's like, ugh, it's horrible. It's one of the t- toxic things about our reality. But I did dive into some heated words uh, with a certain Brad Warner, who's a... Uh, uh, zen guy from Los Angeles. Very, he's a very sprightly writer. I like his writing. I like a lot of the energy that he brings to, to the Dharma. He has some of that street punkish energy uh, as well. But man, does he not like this stuff. He is so um, rude. Oh, it was impressive. Uh, anyway, I'll leave that aside. I'm sure he'll. Uh, I'll, I'll be chatting with him at some point in the future uh, if I keep doing this in, in, in any case. Um, but in any case there was real pushback from the Dharma collective and that was worth kind of playing with you know what what are these issues what are the ways people say this is not part of the Dharma this should not be part of the discussion of contemporary practitioners of Buddhism and related currents one is in Buddhism the uh, notorious fifth precept which says don't don't Take intoxicants. No intoxicants. Now, you know, there's a lot of things to say about this. You know, you can go, well, what does the word actually mean in its original context? And the thing about precepts is that it's just like the Constitution. You know, in the, the Supreme Court, you got the originalists, the, the, you know, the right, who are like, you can't make the Constitution deal with some contemporary political problem just because that's what you think is important. The Constitution has to be respected for what the people who wrote it originally intended. That's as much as we can say. All this new stuff, all these new rights, whatever, you know, right to marry whoever you want to or something. That's not, you can't make the Constitution say that. That's like a, it's it's a bad ventriloquism. So that's an originalist. And then most of us who are more aware of how his history works go, yes, but you're always going to be, you know, revising, reinterpreting, reframing, even if you're a conservative, vis-a-vis this, this, do, this document. Words are open, meanings are open, we're, we're spilling forward into history, there's no ground, it's kind of scary, but tough, that's where we are, so let's try to be nice to people. Um, so, in any case, you have the same kind of tension there, so if you go back and it goes, like it's pretty clear from the poly, at least the people who know their lingo, that uh, intoxicants means, as you might expect, alcohol. Um, now, I'm not even going to talk about how many people who are, you know, serious Dharma practitioners who, at some point, still have alcohol. Um, I do, but I never took the precepts, uh, so I'm not. I don't really count. I'm kind of a heretic by by nature, and a non joiner. Nonetheless, um, leaving aside the issue around uh, alcohol and other forms of uh, acceptable intoxicants like tobacco or caffeine or or hell, well, butrin and other uh, uh, other sorts of psychoactives. That there are some psychoactives that we can consider intoxicants, and obviously these "quote unquote" drugs, psychedelics, uh, can be put in that category. But of course, you know that that it's, it's the the history there. It's just it, it just gets so murky so fast. It's really hard to do that because if you're saying no, 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 psychedelics are intoxicants, the way that. Alcohol is an intoxicant, and that's what they would have meant back. That's what the Buddha would have meant. Well, that's not really true because if any time out of modernity, any place in the world that people have been using these kinds of substances, you know, just the classic psych- psychedelics that are working on serotonin receptors with tryptamines, uh, any place you see that, it, it's enveloped in some kind of if not sacred, then at least healing, very culturally rich, very much not just about getting off kind of framework. So psychedelics aren't intrinsically intoxicants. Maybe in the modern world, they become intoxicants and can be abused as intoxicants, which is clearly the case. Clearly people who are you know, heavy drug users will sometimes take mushrooms or LSD the way that they would do more cocaine or, you know, do some heroin and do some crystal meth. It's just it's just this whole big smorgasbord of intoxicants. Um, but if they're not essentially intoxicants, then we have to be like, well, well, what's an intoxicant then? I mean, if we can take things that aren't essentially intoxicants and turn them into intoxicants through our practice, just because they're psychoactive working on our neurology, it doesn't really work so well because, well, you know, rage is an intoxicant. You feel it in your body, it feels good. Lust is a terrible intoxicant. Oh my God, it feels great. Oh, it's like, oh, it's moving through your system and your mind changes, you can't think straight, you make bad decisions. You're full of yourself. Your ego is like bursting out. You're like a lion. Ah, lion of lust. You know, there's intoxicants everywhere you go. So it's not really clear to me that the spirit of the, uh, the, the precept, let alone the letter, or actually the letter of the precept, let alone the spirit, uh, would really lead one to absolutely denigrate these substances which have such a rich history within, you know, non-modern uh, cultures, and which are clearly used by many modern people in a spiritual context. So I have a lot of respect for people in recovery, and there were a lot of uh, people in recovery who were, who were part of the SF Dharma Collective, and there were some who came to the psychedelic song, and we had some really great conversations about. It. They kind of improved some of my angles. I really, uh, it was a really rich conversation. But it also has to be said that some people use psychedelics to get over addictions, and. As early as the 1950s, there was a robust amount of psychological research that showed that it helped alcoholics. Bill Wilson, the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, had a psychedelic experience on LSD, and it partly gave him the awareness of how an experience of a higher source, a higher power, could change your attitude towards your own proclivities, and out of that come up with a particular kind of quasi-religious cosmology. Um, of AA. Uh, So clearly these things, you know, let alone talking about ibogaine and heroin um, addiction. And, you know, there are some people who need to go through recovery and then they don't stay completely uh, off of uh, psychoactives and they, you know, let some back in, maybe a little cannabis, maybe they occasionally do psychedelics while still, um, you know, being very much... uh, On the path, so to speak. So these were really um, interesting uh, conversations to be having in the context of the psychedelic. But again, the main uh, issue that I wanted to to emphasize was simply that it's already part of the picture. And to talk about that, I read a great Alan Watts uh, essay from a great Alan Watts collection, which I really recommend to people. It's it's short, it's sweet, it's got everything you like in Watts called This Is It and other essays. And it's got... uh, Essays on you know anxiety and Zen. Uh, it's not so much deep uh, Zen culture, but but more in its contemporary expression. And there's an essay called "Beat Zen, Square Zen, and Zen," uh, where he talks a little bit about psychoactives. Uh, and there's also a, his first essay about LSD called "The New Alchemy," which is really terrific. It's a couple of years before the the Joyous Cosmology, which is also worth reading. And, and what's good about it is he takes a very level-headed approach. Uh, he says, like, look, um, uh, you know, there's sort of, there's two, these two schools, the beat zen and the square zen. And beat zen is the beatniks. It's like, do whatever you want, man. You know, the new spirit of refusal, the kind of emergence of the anti-authoritarian, anti-system attitude that would then flower in the 60s. Uh, with the hippies and the radicals, uh, but was already nascent in the kind of beat mode of of the of the nineteen fifties, for whom Zen in particular uh, was very very important. And and Watson was critical of this attitude. He was critical. He didn't say he said Zen doesn't mean you can just do whatever you want. It Doesn't mean you can just like be lazy and drop out. Uh, uh, that that's a misreading. Um, and at the same time, if you look on the other side, what he called squares zen. In squares zen, you had you know people who were very rigorously trying to reproduce the transmission and the tradition, and clinging to all of the accoutrement, the robes, the the language, the gestures, the the arrogance, the superiority, the outperforming, the whole kind of competitive institutional framework. Uh, that is a part of any religion uh, definitely part of Japanese uh, Zen and definitely part of American Zen as, uh, as you know something that picked it up and, and to some extent needs it you kind of need your martinets you need those uh, structuralists <laughs> to use kind of misuse that term in order to keep uh, the framework going but but Watts had a really really interesting thing to say about this uh, which is that, Um, They're both kind of wrong, and the reason they're both wrong is that they are both using Zen as a way to play out something that is profoundly, uh, ultimately kind of political, but very much an unconscious aspect of their own culture. So this is what he said. He goes, "For For the Westerner who is attracted by Zen and who would understand it deeply must have one indispensable qualification. He must understand his own culture so thoroughly that he's no longer swayed by its premises unconsciously. And what he was saying was that the the unconscious premises have to do with authority and with institutions and with the system. So the beatniks were rejecting it and they use Zen to reject it. And the square Zenists were embracing it or embracing their kind of Christian authoritarian history and translating it into another tongue. And I thought that was a very insight, a good insight, not because it tells us about our own moment in terms of this question of authority, but it's more the question of what our unconscious uh, cultural premises are. And this is where things get really rich. Because both Buddhism, especially mindfulness, and psychedelics in its new flourishing phase are bound up in very interesting, intense ways with the premises of late capitalism. In very specific, very noticeable, and also very confusing ways. And this is, in some sense, a whole other conversation. I wanted to focus on this connection between psychedelics and the dharma, but they're both kind of at this moment where I feel like they both need people to start to wake up and to, as as he puts it, uh, uh, no, understand our own culture so thoroughly that we no longer are swayed by its premises unconsciously. We become aware of the way that Our desire for well-being, our desire for happiness, our desire for peacefulness, our desire to reduce stress, our desires to heal our wounds are not innocent. They are not, nothing is innocent at this stage in the game. And it doesn't mean you don't pursue those things, but we have to become more conscious and more critical about how we're pursuing them and what the ultimate goal and the intentions of our pursuit are. And I believe that a good combination of these two things can actually set us going in the right way, and I want to spend uh, the last few minutes talking about that, about how Buddhism can help psychedelic seekers and how psychedelics can help Buddhist seekers. And again, this is a big conversation. It's something we're working out through the psychedelic sangha, but here's just a, a couple of thoughts. It's a little easier to see the first one, how... Uh, people who really go into psychedelics can be helped uh, by the Dharma. Um, One of the things that can happen very easily with uh, excessive psychedelic use is a a sort of uh, diluted character, uh, a way of uh, believing the visions, let's say, a kind of inf- a psychological inflation, a kind of magical thinking that in small doses and, you know, sometimes in big doses, but for short periods of time, uh, is, is really groovy, but uh, as a lifestyle um, can be very... Uh, problematic, and what you find within within that kind of psychedelic framework, and again, I'm not talking about people who are doing it for uh, you know uh, very specific psychological reasons in the kind of new zone. I'm talking about psychedelic culture as I've known it. Is that there's not a lot of uh, kind of checking <laughs> going on. There's not a lot of like uh, negative feedback mechanisms that might interrupt uh, your your new trip because it's such a goofy. Uh, uh, in some ways kind of lazy and uninformed space that it's really easy just to run with whatever concept you're going. And there are people and ideas and processes and and especially collective operations that can help push against that. Uh, And, you know, those kinds of mechanisms have been improving very noticeably, you know, over the years, over the decades as uh, people, you know, try to figure out how do we become mature in this practice and i think a lot of elements of buddhism the commitment to a daily practice the getting to the the serious mind training that, that you do outside of any wild experience so that when you go in there you have a better trained mind And when you come down, you're much better able to integrate the scary stuff, the beautiful stuff, simply because you've been devoted to a certain uh, idea of mind training. But I also think there are elements within the Dharma, within the philosophical dimension uh, of Buddhism that are extremely helpful, lessons about no self. That, that keep you from the void of nihilism and the kind of goofiness of like believing you're everything uh, there these these ideas which can be very psychedelic in essence have been worked out and played out and 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 reframed and reshaped through the, the course of the very rich and, and diverse uh, traditions of Buddhism in a way that you can kind of work through um, kinds of more uh, intense in-your-face experiences in a certain frame. And finally, I believe that b- Buddhism properly practiced, I don't know what that means exactly, kind of uh, we'll, we'll leave that uh, aside, but that uh, Buddhism taken, swallowed deeply is a critical practice. That cri- criticism, critique, questioning, uh, sometimes lacerating questions are part of the practice, not the whole thing. If it was the whole thing; it, it wouldn't work. But it's a very, very significant part of it. As, as Chris Kelly, one of the psychedelic sangha founders, um, said, "Buddhism is stressful." I man, I love that line because everyone's like, "No, it's it's about relieving stress, man." And like, you know, your job's bumming you out. You do a little meditation, mindfulness, you feel better. Great. You no, know, that's not. That's maybe that's a baby steps. That's first grade the deeper you go into it especially when you try to integrate it especially when you're dealing with the chaos and confusions of our historical moment it's stressful because you got to keep asking critical questions critical questions about your experience about authority about why you're doing what you're doing about who's benefiting from that you know you can't leave those things at the door you can leave them at the door sometimes to go into the you know dharma retreat where you're not going to think about this stuff anymore great but it's not part of the whole uh, package deal. And on the flip side, um, I also believe that for some Buddhist practitioners, only for some, I, I would never say that You know, this is something that should be widely practiced. I don't believe that's true. But for some Buddhist practitioners, I suspect that psychedelics have a lot to, to hold. For one, they open up realms of emotion, of intense emotion, Uh, that are very powerful, sometimes very scary, but potentially very transformative. And people don't talk enough about that. They talk about the visions or the entities or the, uh, you know, the the kind of peak experiences when you see that you're one with everything or whatever. You know, I think peak experiences are way overrated. Uh, I think, and even in those, what's less important Often is, is more important than the insight or the vision or the idea or the 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 uh, the, um, the clear seeing is the emotions that go along with it, the emotions that lead up to it, the fear, the confusion, the strange intensities that move through your body, and all of these are grist for the mill of mindfulness, grist for the mill of internal alchemy, um, and. So I think that that Buddhists can sort of create have have a a place to uh, experience wonder, intensity, and deeply embodied energetic flowerings uh, that allow for the kind of refining and manifestation of gestures, ideas, and practices that otherwise can sometimes get a bit dry or a bit uh, repetitive. I think there's uh, other things to say, but um, maybe the only other point that to, to really mention is that I also believe that psychedelics, properly taken, don't just lead back to the self. The psychedelics open out into the world ineluctably. You are unfolded and spread through history, nature, animals, time. And that experience of being unfolded and mixed and magnified through the outside, through the great outdoors, not just of nature, but of reality itself, I believe can work as a block against the tendency within contemporary secular Buddhism to return to the and refined self, the actualized self, the prodded self, the pampered self, the self of well-being industry, the self uh, that is, uh, you know, the the entrepreneurial get-ahead achievement self of capitalism, which is always in the picture tugging us like a, like an evil magnet, like the Death Star in Star Wars, and to avoid that or at least resist it is one of our challenges, whether we're talking psychedelics or spirituality or yoga or just having a good time. Uh, We really have to refine the way in which we can heal, transform, unfold forward, but not revert to the capitalist achievement self, to unfold out into the world with all of its terror, with all of its others, beautiful others, scary others, and with all of the potential uh, frightening and disturbing things on the horizon. And with that, I bid you good night. At least it's good night in my time. So until next week, keep your minds open.